Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a compassionate, non-dualistic approach to a faith life. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined by Sue Wilton and Peter Catt, as always. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dom. Um, And excitingly, we have uh, gone on an excursion again on the podcast this week. We are over at Sue's New Church, St. Andrews, in Indrapilly, uh, in Sue Wilton's house, actually. So you might hear dogs in this podcast. That's a a disclaimer to put at the start, Sue. That's right. That's right. You never know when they might want to join in. What are the two dogs? Just in case people hear them. We have Maisie the Border Collie and Albus Dumbledog, who's a rough collie. (laughs) Okay. So if you do hear dogs barking in the background, that is who you are hearing. Uh, we have a very special guest who has made the uh, the uh, shortish trek over from the University of Queensland to join us here at Indrapilly today. Um, we have Rob Pensilfini, Associate Professor of Linguistics at Drama uh, at the University of Queensland, also Artistic Director of the Queensland Shakespeare Ensemble, um, and also someone who's done significant field work translating and working with traditional Indigenous languages in the Northern Territory. Uh, it's a it's a wide and varied. CV, Rob. Um, do you, how do you introduce yourself when you when you meet people? I usually bark like I was stumbled dog. <laughs> how do I introduce? Hello, I'm Rob. Yeah, um, yeah, that does does it pretty much. Someone says, "What do you do?" What yeah, you exactly. Um, what don't I do? No, that's not true. Um, I, uh, I it usually depends on the context I'm meeting them in. So if it's more of a theatrical context uh, and they know me because you know they've encountered me that way, it might come up in conversation later that uh, I do linguistics and vice versa. But if someone says, "What do you do for a living?" I say, "Just what you did." Yep. Oh, I <laughs> teach and research at the University of Queensland in linguistics and in drama, and I work with a theatre company. Yeah. Well, and and the reason we have got you on today is to discuss some of the links between um, faith or church and theatre and how at their best they're both performing similar functions and, and I suppose what can be learned from, from one another. Before we do get into any of that, though, I'd just love you to talk briefly about your work with traditional Indigenous languages, um, how long you've been doing that and, and what that work is. Sure. So um, I accidentally took a course on Indigenous Australian languages when I was doing a linguistics major, which was about the third or fourth thing I tried to do at university back in the late 80s um, and just thought they were wonderful and fascinating and uh, I did my first field work in 1995 so I guess it's coming up to a quarter of a century now. I've worked uh, in terms of field work with the same communities over that time on and off with long stretches of, of not visiting and um, just wrapping up a project on one of the languages of the Barclay. Mm. And what, what have, what, I mean, obviously there's plenty you've learned, but, but what surprised you from that work, maybe? Oh, wow, what surprised me? Well, I think that we spend a lot of time uh, in urban Australia and maybe in what we might call mainstream white Australia, um, even those of us who are very interested in Indigenous culture, Indigenous people, um, somewhat what I might perhaps uh, uncharitably called fetishising. So that is picking up on the differences and going, wow, look at that, that's really different. They do this thing and that thing. And I think it's finding the undercurrents, which I suppose is sort of what we're talking about here too, with these these different practices uh, in life, that they're looking at at what's underneath them. So finding similarities, for example, um, linguistically, if we just look at the languages, the structures of a lot of Indigenous languages are probably, it depends where you are on the continent, but more similar to Latin 
than they are to what people might think maybe you know New Guinean languages or, or Asian languages uh, or even to modern European languages so there's structurally that but then even in terms of things like land tenure and land ownership so you know uh, I was always kind of brought up in the 80s to, to being told things like oh indigenous people don't own the land the land owns them which was an attempt to I think articulate a, a different kind of relationship to the land which is is fair enough but once you get in there and start looking at it that's not strictly speaking true I mean there is actually a land uh, a system of land ownership that means pretty much the same thing that it means uh, you know in um, in um, European or, or Asian or African cultures. Interesting. So when you, you went out to, to work with Indigenous people, you, you realised the differences really aren't as maybe stark as many people think. Yeah, well, it could be that I'm, you know, wired to look for similarities rather than differences anyway. So there are people who, who you know, splitters and lumpers or whatever. Um, and, and I think I'm interested more in those similarities, the surprising ones. So, yeah. Mm, intriguing. Well, we could do a whole podcast on that, I'm sure. Um, but we are going to take the angle of drama and you, your work within theatre. I want to start um, that uh, by we, we did have a conversation last week at the University of Queensland in, in preparation for this and you made a very interesting comment that uh, Shakespeare is asking the same three questions that the church at its best is asking. Um, I, I just c- Could you just speak a bit to that, um, what those three questions are? Sure, in my humble opinion about what the church is doing when it's best, <laughs> like I have any business even saying that. Um, yeah, look, it struck me, and I may be totally wrong, that, that the existential questions at the core of Shakespeare could be said to be at least spiritual, if not outright religious questions, because they are questions of structure as well as of metaphysics. So I think those three questions are, I always say there's a universal question, a social or socio-political question, and an individual question. So the universal question is, um, what does it mean to be alive? So, okay, I'm here, I'm a human being, what on earth is that? Um, so that's this sort of universal question, universal to humans. I mean, probably, you know, Aldous Dumbledore doesn't ask this question <laughs> of themselves. Um, uh, the second question is a socio-political question, which is uh, how must we act, as in how must we act towards one another, which pans out to how do we build a, a community, a society? How do we do that? And then the individual question of what do I do? What must I do? What should I do? Uh, So whether it's a moral question or an imperative or even a what can I do, um, it comes down to that individual one. And you can look at any of uh, Shakespeare's plays, any of the speeches, and those three questions are being asked constantly. Mm. Did Shakespeare get any answers? Oh, look, um, one of the reasons I love Shakespeare and I think theatre at its best, and I feel more comfortable talking about theatre at its best, but you can tell me, I was wondering, maybe this is... You know, maybe this is is, is true of, of um, religious life and practice as well, is that, uh, for, at least for me, the older I get, the less I'm interested in the answers and the more I'm interested in the questions, um, which is why I sort of see myself as um, a, a, a kind of a fire-arbendian anarchist, but he was like a theoretical anarchist. I guess I'm a sort of a spiritual anarchist, which is, look, I have fairly strong beliefs. I know what they are. I can argue for them if required. But I'm so glad that I live on a planet where there are lots of people that have different beliefs because Mm. it's the questions, ultimately, um, that I want to live into, not the answers. Well, less than 10 minutes into the podcast, and it's very clear why we've got Rob on the On The Way (laughs) podcast, Uh, I think. Now, just touching on another theme where we are discussing Shakespeare, you made a, a... 
what I initially thought was a funny comment, but then as I thought later on, it was quite a profound comment that you're interested in the living Shakespeare or the historic, not the historical Shakespeare, which is obviously many people would hear that in the church where we're interested in the living Christ, not necessarily the historical Christ. Um, what, what's, what's the difference? How do you see the living Shakespeare? Okay. So I have to confess uh, I uh, hated Shakespeare until I was in my late 20s. Really, really did. All through school. Uh, we didn't have drama classes in school, not really. We had English and English Lit, and our English Lit teachers, bless them, tried to get us to get up and do things, but they really didn't have the skills or particularly the passion for that. So um, for me, my exposure to Shakespeare was very much an, you know, open your mouth and take your Shakespeare, it's good for you. Uh, and my exposure to Shakespeare performance was these kind of what I would call almost Victorian aesthetic, you know, um, uh, the pseudo-historical tights and cod pieces and, and a lot of declaiming and, and that sort of stuff. And it just didn't speak to me because it was kind of presented as a this was an important thing in the theatre and therefore we should still be interested in it. Um, but uh, uh, And I felt alienated from it because it was done even in Australia back then. It still is to a large degree done in... Um, various approximations of British accents, upper class often, and people would say, well, this is how you're supposed to speak Shakespeare, which I later learned is absurd because that particular accent, the received pronunciation, the BBC English, did not exist and would not exist for another 200 years after Shakespeare. So there's no, no, no way he intended it to be spoken that way. At any rate, I felt alienated from it because my own background, I'm not of an Anglo background. I'm... Um, my, I grew up my first language, but only by a matter of a year or so was Italian. Um, and I felt very much that this was something about British culture and kind of highbrow, British, I would say English even. And it wasn't until much later that I learned um, what Shakespeare's role was in the society and, and, you know, where that all came from. And it was actually when I was living in the States and I went to see some Shakespeare done over there and for the first time I was interested and I was engaged and I was moved and a big part of it was that the actors were living it in that moment and they would speak in their own... I mean, they might put on a character voice or character accent but by and large they were speaking in their own authentic voices and the, what they were saying mattered to them. They weren't declaiming, they weren't just broadcasting it, they were actually speaking from the heart and even though they were from a different culture to me, the fact that they were speaking their truth in their own voices engaged me. So I mm. came back here with a kind of desire to find that. And when I say living Shakespeare, I think for a lot of people it's easy to think, oh, right, so modernise everything, you know, do everything in modern dress, etc. Um, that's that's fine, that's cool, but that's not what we do either. Um, we will do settings in different periods or we'll often kind of um, have a, a create... Um, an aesthetic through the set and the costumes that is of no particular place and time but which heightens the theme so we're always looking for what the words say to us and who we are now rather than I mean in order to do that it's important to also do a little bit of historical work and understand where that came from but we're not attempting to replicate what it might have meant to Shakespeare's audience and there are certain plays that you just can't do that with so for example Merchant of Venice or The Taming of the Shrew cannot mean the same thing to a contemporary audience as they meant to Shakespeare's audience and I don't think Shakespeare could have predicted um, what they mean to a contemporary audience I don't think he could have predicted 
um, World War Two. He couldn't have predicted the 20th century or couldn't have predicted the form that um, 20th century and 21st century feminism would take. And those plays change very much in their reception. But the brilliance of the writing is that they can accommodate that. What I find interesting about your comment there, and, and there's a lot of um, parallels that, that can be drawn on here, but your comment that uh, you felt Shakespeare was something that was good for you, you should take your Shakespeare every day, is it, that is, <laughs> that, that, well, every now and then at least, <laughs> that is the Christianity, Peter, that a lot of people get, that you should take your Bible every now and then. You're not going to enjoy it. It's historical. It's a bit flat, yeah. a bit dull, but it's good for you. Just get it in you. Um, did, with, with what... Rob's talking about there in terms of how's this relevant to an audience today, not the audience of the time. Do you see that as the exact parallel with um, the the Christian way? Oh, absolutely. As Rob's been speaking, I've been um, saying, yes, amen, go for it. Um, (laughs) You know, the whole idea of living into the questions is one of the concepts that we often talk about on this podcast. The Rilke idea, Rilke's advice to the young poet was... Uh, uh, ask the questions and then live into them and as you live into them you will be transformed and it's not about getting to the end it's that sort of same concept we uh, encounter in the Buddhist tradition where they say if you meet the Buddha on the road kill him it's all about the journey and entering more deeply and working out how it speaks to us in our time so Mm. that idea of the living Shakespeare and the living Christ uh, you know, what is what is it to encounter Christ in this world now, and and what what is the Christ we encounter uh, inviting us to do? So, and and it's all contextual. It's about now, and it really drives that understanding of the sacrament of the present moment that we have no moment but the present, and the only time you're really going to encounter God is in this moment. And learning how to attend to that presence is one of the one of the things I think religion at its best teaches people. That's why we do meditation and the like. I think too part of attending uh, it, it leads to authenticity, which is also what Rob was talking about when you're when you're living when you encountered Shakespearean actors who were actually proclaiming and, and acting in an authentic voice. They were they were living it, they were feeling it, and I think that's because of attention, attention to the present moment that then leads to authenticity. It's interesting that you touched on some of Shakespeare's plays that would wouldn't be able to be as directly applicable to today's society. There are some problematic themes, I suppose, that arise in in some areas when you look at them through the lens of 2019. And I I think that's interesting because the text you're working with is very similar to the the Christian text, the Bible, which similarly, if you look at it on surface level, because of the cultural context it was written in, has some very problematic themes. So how do you go about discerning them? When you approach Shakespeare's work, how do you go about discerning what is being said, what's useful, what isn't useful? I guess these questions of what's relevant to today Mm. and maybe what isn't. Well, yeah, I think the question is how is it relevant today? So I think it's not not trying to figure out what works, what what do we need to cut out. Occasionally there's stuff we cut out either because we want the play to be shorter or there might be very, very specific um, topical references to something that happened last month when Shakespeare wrote the play which nobody knows about and doesn't advance the theme. But the question is really how. So, you know, as you say, there are some problematic themes. Um, I prefer to say that they're sort of problem themes in that the the problem is given to us by the play. So, for example, if we look at uh, Shylock in Merchant of Venice, 
and some people go, that's an anti-Semitic play. Well, I think you need to not confuse the presentation of an anti-Semitic viewpoint or anti-Semitic characters with the play being anti-Semitic because absolutely there are anti-Semitic characters and, and some of those, and I think fascinatingly, are what might be the romantic heroes. So the romantic heroes of the play are not necessarily, you know, the moral heroes of the play. I don't think Shakespeare's plays have any moral heroes. Everyone's horrible in all of them um, for different reasons. But you get the opposite viewpoint. And I would say you can study Shakespeare your entire life um, and you'll never have any idea what the author actually believed about anything because um, he's actually asking questions and imagining a scenario or borrowing a scenario from literature, which he tended to do, and um, then putting every opposing viewpoint up there and giving it voice and, and giving it its fair ex and full expression. Um, so it's believed that with a character like Shylock, Shakespeare may well have set out to write a comic villain in the vein of Barabbas in um, The Jew of Malta, which was uh, definitely the, the prototype or, you know, part of the inspiration for that character. And that character would probably have been played by someone with, um, you know, a, a big fake nose on and, and shouting in a fake... Although, I was going to say a fake Jewish accent, but of course... In theory, the Elizabethans wouldn't have actually met any Jews because they weren't allowed in England. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's one thing to understand, that the context is that this is an exotic species because we don't have them in England officially at the time. However, if he set out to write a pure comic villain at whom we laugh and feel scorn rather than pity, he completely failed. Um and Shakespeare completely fails every time he sets out to write a two-dimensional character, whether it be a comic, like a clown that you just laugh at, a villain whom you just scorn, or a hero whom you just adore. You won't find them in Shakespeare because there was something wrong with his brain and he, he just couldn't write a character without giving them motivation, intention and, you know, and, and questioning of everything. So um, I think the play just rings differently. It's, it, it, it speaks differently to a contemporary audience and, sorry, I should say to various contemporary audiences because it's not going to be the same. So, um, and that's a great thing about the plays too is that in different contexts, different actors or different audiences, they, they resonate differently. So as somebody who, to this stage of my life, probably is similar to what you described <laughs> your, your early years as, has found Shakespeare's work quite dry, probably. Yeah. It, it enjoyed some themes at times, but it has, I've not pursued Shakespeare myself, necessarily. To me and other people like me, what is it that makes Shakespeare so great and, and what am I missing? Yeah. Um, it's not your fault. It's the fault of the productions you've been exposed to. I believe that. Um, and a big thing for me, and we've Sue and I have sort of mentioned this before, is this notion of full embodiment and authenticity. So the danger with Shakespeare and the reason that Shakespeare is often so dry uh, in performance and certainly on the page I still can't read a Shakespeare play off the page I just lose interest halfway through act one scene one uh, um, the danger with Shakespeare is that you can very easily because the rhetoric is so you know blistering is so um, is so penetrating and is so precise you can think it's all about the mind you can think it's an intellectual endeavor and and that that you can deliver it in the same way as 
one might write a philosophical essay. And I think that's where this stentorian declamatory idea, and also if your voice is beautiful and resonant enough that you don't have to actually mean the stuff you're saying. Um, and because the rhetoric is so brilliant, um, it can almost stand up on that alone, but it's dull. Um, so a lot of people historically have responded to that by going, we're losing the hugeness, the passion that's clearly in there. Um, so they'll do something which is to strip the language away. And there's a long history of this in, in the theatre, which I won't go into. But you get these very then spectacular, in the literal sense, spectacular um, productions which kind of show you the themes and they're quite visceral and quite powerful but then they've lost the rhetoric. So it's a matter of actually marrying, if you want to call it this trinity, I guess, of the head, the, the heart or soul and the body. And the, the expression is full in all those terms. Because Shakespeare can almost stand up on any one of those legs, but really does best when it's completely embodied. So you, you are physically present. I mean, what you were both saying before about present moment, that's at the heart of all good acting you know, so absolutely. Um, yeah, you have to be physically present, mentally present and open to the feeling. And then it communicates. And then it doesn't matter that the language is a little bit younger than our language that we speak today. So it's a little bit different, not very much. Um, it doesn't matter that there are a lot of words because the words are felt and chosen for a reason. It doesn't matter that you can't necessarily understand each and every word. Um because you get it one way or another. <laughs> but these guys are nodding like well, crazy. Well, that's what we here. battle with. You know, yeah. Christianity can be reduced to doctrine and we can have fights about doctrine. And yet where it really matters and transforms is the way people live it and people who don't understand it live it. One of the, one of the beauties, I think, of, um, of the sacramental type churches is we don't understand what happens. Um, we have a whole heap of people who come who don't understand what's going on. You know, we've got we've got people coming to the cathedral whose whose language is not English, and they're still participating mm. and they're still being transformed by their presence in the community, and they're there for all sorts of other reasons. And they're not going to turn up to a conversation about you know do we believe in the virgin birth or not but they are going to turn up to a conversation about how do we live together as a community and how do we make a difference in the world and what's your take on this because that's what we're called to do. Right. So again, it's embodied and it's, it's, it is that heart and yeah. head and hands sort of trinity that we often talk about um, and that's what transforms people. And um, you know, my experience of church was like your experience of um, Shakespeare. I came from outside of the church as a young person and most of the people I encountered wanted to talk to me about whether Noah's Ark was sitting on a hill in the middle of Turkey somewhere um, rather than the lived idea and it was only when I was introduced to by accident to the idea of faith as an encounter that it all clicked for me yeah yeah encounter that's a fantastic word and I think um I had a, a teacher, one of my acting teachers, who, interestingly enough, used to be a Jesuit priest. Um, actually, a couple of my acting teachers did, but they, they gave up the church for Shakespeare. Um, and uh, what did he say? He used to say, make sure that your every encounter with the text is an opportunity for... 
I th- he didn't say enlightenment, but it was something very much like that. So that every time you come into, yeah, you're, you're not just repeating what's kind of worked before. You're open, heart, mind, body, soul, the whole works to, to what might happen. And yeah, and it's that, you know, that, that I've talked about elsewhere that um, um, something that's happened in the last triple digits years a few hundred years is this kind of compartmentalization where they say well you churches you can go and deal with the spirit you know whatever that is and you uh, therapists you can go and deal with the mind whatever that is and you actors just keep us entertained whatever that is yeah and and that historically there wasn't they were the same thing yeah we all disempowered in the process yeah Yeah, absolutely marginalized marginalized yeah. Yeah. yeah so what's what's the alternative model Oh gosh! Um, <laughs> uh, remember, I don't like answers. Live the question. Live the question. Yeah. What is the alternative? I think it's you know it's not to kind of. I often begin my discussions of theatre and the purpose of theatre with with um, what are loosely and somewhat erroneously called hunter gatherer societies and uh, the the function that theatre has in those but it's and then some people think well you know you can't go back to that and it's like well yeah well we maybe we'll be forced to who knows Um, and it's not necessarily a back it's just a different Um, there are there are examples of societies that have gone back to that like the Lacandones in um, the Yucatan I think in Mexico who uh, Mayans who abandoned their cities and went back to the forests. Anyway, I'm not suggesting that. Um, although there's discussion of that kind of thing in Shakespeare as well, and as you like it, um, it's more about being cognizant of what we have willingly or unwillingly abandoned along the way, or given given away agency over, and whether that's actually a, a choice that we've made. Like we might be fine with that. So I look at a lot of contemporary actors, for example, who have very, very little agency over their own practice and their own careers. And in fact, you know, in the theatre world and in the entertainment world generally, um, we have these people called agents, and that's their name, right? Why? Because we give them our agency. We say, you you go manage me, and, and I'll just be this artist thing, whatever that is. And that's historically very different from Shakespeare's day where the artists owned the theatres um, and owned everything that went on with in them. And of course, you know, people were giving them money, so they've got to keep certain people happy and so on, but they still ultimately had agency. And, you know, you point... Talk to I talk about that with people, and some people go, well, "That's quite concerning," and others go, "I don't care. I, I want to be famous." Well, that's fine as long as they're making that choice consciously. But I think you know, if you don't kind of look at that, then you just assume, "Well, this is the way it is and has to be." It is interesting when you look at the parallels between, uh, I suppose, the desire for a good show that comes through maybe in in theatre, which is why people like to go to the two thousand seat theatres for the the two hundred dollar ticket high caliber performances. And in the faith sphere, why people, you know, enjoy going to the mega churches, perhaps. And I don't, I don't want to pay out the mega churches or anything, but they enjoy the the big show. There is an enjoyment of the entertainment of the show that often can miss the message or the the I don't know what what the actual intention of the the form itself was was there to do. Do, do you find that a major problem in theatre? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's. Um you know, it's a question of of with entertainment. What? Why do we? Why do we entertain? Are we entertaining 
to engage or to disengage. And the disengaging kind of education, uh, education that too, Freudian <laughs> slip, entertainment is um, is very seductive because it's it's like the you know the flickering light that says don't think about this. Um, but uh, you know, I always say there's there isn't there isn't a thing called political theatre. All theatre is political. Even if the, <laughs> even if, yeah, right, yeah, even if ultimately what the politics of it is is reinforcing the status quo, and that's the majority of the large scale commercial, um, and yeah, I mean it's always a question of whose interests are being served, who benefits, and yeah, I'm you won't catch me at the big two thousand seat venues. I don't enjoy them, but. Again, it's great that they're that those are there, but it's where it becomes worrisome is when those become everything and take over, and it, then you start looking at things like funding structures and and so forth, and you ask, well, why do people enjoy this, and is it not in large part because we've been told that that's what quality is? Mm-hmm. We've had that equated with quality, so the thing that people can afford to put a lot of money into and therefore charge a lot of money for, or I'm not sure what the cause and effect is there, um, that's better than the thing that is poor. And so you get within the theatre, you had Bertolt Brecht with the poor theatre, and you're trying to say, well, actually, there's virtue in in um, in not having all that. And, of course, there's the, the, the poor church, and, yeah, there's all those movements throughout history. Um, but, you know, we're living in the, in the zenith of of neoliberalism so it's really it's really that kind of idea that that which looks like and it's often this idea of independence you know look at this independent um but but it's not truly independent it's the veneer of independence because uh i don't know this is a tangent but uh, some um colleagues and i were talking yesterday on the way home about um this idea of the self-made billionaire and, um, you know, looking at a few that have been in the paper and going, how is that self-made? <laughs> or the idea of the um, the uh, the lone genius who, when you dig down, there's always a context, right? Um, and the problem is when the context becomes... Um, if, uh, it, it lacks diversity. It lacks a richness. It becomes all one kind of thing, and it's the exact same thing that we're seeing with, you know, people being concerned over the loss of species diversity, cultural diversity, and so forth. It's when everything begins to become homogenized in any sphere, you kind of have to begin to wonder why and and who's actually benefit, who's best served by that, if anyone, mm. and who's dispowered, disempowered yeah. in the process. Um, controlled and become part of the system yeah Yeah. a predictable part of the system yeah here's your job your job is to consume um to produce and to consume and to be quiet and not to get involved in politics or transformation or yeah and there's a myth i think that somehow that benefits the system as a whole yeah but we know from ecology that it doesn't so that when any niche in an ecosystem is occupied by only one species the system as a whole is weaker absolutely um Mm. yeah and there's the Mm. same thing surely applies socially artistically spiritually on all those levels and the rich you know the rich then tell the poor that uh, not to not to complain because it's class warfare and the whole the whole system is actually doing well because they're doing well. Right. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah. there was an amazing um, headline in the paper that shall not be named um, last week about the 
um, the climate strike, the kids' strike, and the the headline said something like class battle or class war. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were painting it like it was a, a class war, but the people in the regions and the industrial towns were the oppressed lower classes yes. and the kids from the cities yeah. were the... Uh, privileged. You know, and, the privileged. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah, it's very of, clever. Very yeah. clever packaging. There's a lot of co-option mm. of the of the terminology yeah. of oppression by everyone wants to be oppressed oh yeah well <laughs> that's one of the things we've talked about in the past is how how because um in the faith tradition we discover that the victim is innocent in the resurrection that over the years it's become really sexy to claim victimhood whereas once a time once upon a time being the victim was to be destroyed now there's a sort of advantage in saying well i'm the victim here and class warfare feeds into that um and, and, and so many narratives now where people claim victimhood and therefore um, and especially dress up privilege as victimhood. So we see it in the white supremacy oh, yeah. movement, and which is really opposite for where, where we are at the moment. Yeah, the, uh, the oppressed minority of white supremacists. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, and I think, uh, you know, because there's a fine line between, you know, we need to, to be able to talk about... A, that perhaps have been silenced, swept under the rug and so forth. But at what point, yeah, does that become a... It actually becomes a replacement for conversation, yeah. Uh, I suppose touching on these things, who's being oppressed, you know, where is power corrupt, these sorts of questions are at its best what theatre is trying to expose and, and what the church is trying to look at. And that is the prophetic voice, Sue, which um, I know uh, is a big thing that you see as a parallel between church and theatre. Do you just want to touch a bit on, on what you see the prophetic voice as, as, as a definition maybe? Oh, it's a definition. I, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of truth-telling, of exposing what is, and I think that's what I love about some of Rob's work is that it gets it actually exposes what's going on and what we've lost. I think we can become so numbed by the way the world functions in its compartmentalised forms, in um, the way that, that money and power um, keeps us running in these tracks, you know, and we don't realise what we've lost in terms of authentic voices of people. So the prophetic voice for me exposes truth-telling, the, the truth of how things really are, things that we maybe have been asleep and have not, not noticed, how what the way we live is continuing to oppress others. Uh, um, the, the prophetic voice means that um, it can it can come out through theatre, through through the church. It's the it's the way that a free person feels can really claim that agency again and the freedom of their voice to say this is what's really going on. Can you have a look? It's the emperor's new clothes story. It's saying you know look, you know he's not wearing anything. This is what the truth of our society really is. But of course, it's never the prophetic voice is never in tune with the voices of power and and economic gain. It's always the opposite to that. You know the because those voices are strident and overcome all else the prophetic voice comes underneath and says hang on let's look at this look at what this means that we allow society to function like this look at the impact that it is having on those maybe who don't have a voice so would you say that in a way it's asking okay who haven't we heard from yet yeah that's right yeah and i think that's you know that's one of the things i like doing i'm not saying shakespeare does this inherently in a sense it does he does with all of the different kinds of characters so even when you've got your kings and nobles then you'll have the clown characters come on and give a very insightful that you'll hear their take on it but also in terms of who gets to do it so this is a big thing for me is probably underlies a lot of what i do um 
and questions that aren't, um, I don't think, are being asked in the commercial theatre or aren't being explored in the commercial theatre is who gets to tell these stories. And everyone knows, oh, well, everyone should get to tell their own stories. But I think that it's important. Um, a friend and colleague of mine, Tariq Jenkins, works with uh, incarcerated youth, youth in South Africa uh, and does Shakespeare with them. And he says he doesn't, he couldn't care less about the supposed universality of Shakespeare's themes. For him, it's about putting the language of the oppressors into the mouths of the oppressed. And, you know, so who gets to tell these stories? And it's why I, I you know, we at the Queensland Shakespeare Ensemble do things like our prison work or work with um, communities, working with uh, people in transition from homelessness and so forth, is because there are stories there that that need to be told and voices that need to be heard and that actually Shakespeare is a powerful and safe way for those voices to be heard um, because I think that theatre at its best um, speaks the unspeakable and you do that through the the guise or the permission of being in a fictitious story or just the way that Shakespeare, you know, wrote... Um, wrote about very contemporary uh, themes in the politics of his day by setting stuff in ancient Greece or 400 years ago in Scotland or, or wherever. Um, and working, so for example, yesterday and we're just a couple of weeks into a project at the new women's prison out of Gatton and hearing, we don't go in there and say, tell us about your lives, tell us your story. But in the course of working and getting to know people, you do, people do share stories. And for me then the question becomes one rather from like oh what horrible thing did you do to get yourself in here and it's almost always like wow how did you survive mm -hmm. and right. you know it's like it's no longer it's it's more about oh my if i if i were in that position i would have either not survived or done far far worse you know than whatever yeah um but then when people take those experiences and find that Shakespeare's words, or I imagine any of that kind of classic and especially verse, like a lot, a lot of the, um, uh, the Bible as well, um, th they become a container for those experiences. And the people themselves benefit from articulating them, from exploring them, but so does the audience benefit from hearing these stories in voices other than the ones that we've been hearing them in for the last 100 or 200 years. I suppose the, the risk of institutionalisation um, is, is one of the main things we're touching on here is that when something does become institutionalised, aligns itself with commercial interests, power interests, it becomes much harder to speak that prophetic voice of truth-telling, of, of maybe calling out what uh, others are just taking for granted. And I know that's been obviously with, with the stories uh, around the church for the past 15, 20 years, that's been quite an enormous um, story there. And in theatre, it's resulted in most people's expressions encounters of theatre largely being just your commercial mass-produced, I mm. suppose, sorts of theatre. So I, my, I guess my question is, knowing that institutionalisation is such a risk to the actual function of a faith life, of theatre, of, of truth-telling itself, what do you do to resist institutionalisation or to stay wary of it or to see where it's spread its veins through, through what you do? How do you stay wary of that? Yeah, and I work in so many different kinds of institution. It's, it's wild. Um, I think that it, it behooves us to have an understanding of those things 
and not to be under any illusions about who's making the decisions at various different levels, different places. I like crashing institutions into each other. So, like with our work, uh, with our work in Shakespeare in prisons, we've taken an institution, Shakespeare, which is for years much to its detriment, in my opinion, um, been associated with the highest of institutions. You know, it's high culture, it's elite, it's all these things, and then sticking that in an institution where we house you know the worst of the worst and people who we're constantly told are well we're either told they're not human or they're a very different kind of person they are criminals you know big c big label right and um taking those two extremes and just shoving them together in a room to see what happens um with the hope that it'll shake them both up so it's kind of using the 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 power of the institution it's the one place where i actually welcome the um the prestige that shakespeare has in most other contexts where i work with shakespeare it gets in the way um but there's the one place where it's actually an advantage um but yeah i mean there's always the question of deinstitutionalization and i suppose i can you know pretend to take the moral high ground and go well you stay poor and don't sell out but that's cuz no one's offered me heaps of money um <laughs> probably i mean i'd like to think that it's a it's a deliberate decision and to a certain extent it is because of the way that you know i present what i do i'm not likely <laughs> that's not likely to happen but um yeah, I think it's constantly asking that question. And one of the things that, as far as I know, in acting schools or in theatre schools or even in directing programs, they never ask is, why is theatre? Not what is theatre, but why is theatre? And I think if you ask yourself that question about anything you do, um, yeah, then, then at least you're aware, you know, of... of um, of the sorts of things that can impinge on on your intention or even what your own intention is mm. like i think there are a lot of actors who can't articulate why they act you know really beyond the the very superficial we face exactly the same issue and um it often comes down to the fact that we measure the wrong things so yeah. you know in in our church at the moment we're measuring money and we measure bums on seats and um, thankfully there's a bit of a counter movement going on that says well how about we measure the things that we say we stand for which in, in the Anglican tradition are the five marks of mission and so the question is not how many people turned up to church on Sunday but how have you protected the planet or what what unjust structure have you challenged this week yeah and if you haven't done those things have you really served your purpose and, and it comes down to that same question of why church what why gather um what are we what are we doing here is it to be a club of like-minded people who get some sense of solace by being with a group of people similar of similar ilk and understanding or is it to be constantly open to the other and um you know it, it where i am i'm very fortunate that we have lots of uh, rough sleepers around and when they find themselves in worship um they actually transform us and they come as gift and it's not that we have to minister to them it's that they actually minister to us and one of the you know, some of the real powerful images I have are of, of a particular homeless guy who just rocks in occasionally and there he is kneeling with his very, very dirty hands receiving communion. Um, and that's transformative. And 
again, like as you say, with the the the, the uh, reputation of institution can be a blessing and a curse. And with the <coughs> pardon me, with the the rough sleepers, it's often a blessing because they sleep on our side because they think that they'll be safer. Mm. That God will look after them because of what the church represents to them, um, and that. That's a challenge to us to make sure that then they are kept safe, so that we we honour their expectations. Yeah, and you say um, it's really interesting to talk about measuring. In a sense, you're saying that what had been being measured, in a sense, was input dollars in the yeah, in the tray or, or bumps yeah. on seats, yeah. as opposed to measuring the output. Mm. And I think it's it sounds almost like it's the clerical equivalent of trickle-down economics oh well if we've got lots of people coming and and we're getting lots of money then it must be working right but in actual fact and the same thing in theater i think a lot of the time or again to take our prison work people are always interested in asking us how does it change the prisoners how does it change the prisoners um and what you said about people ministering to you i'm really interested yeah it's an interesting question um but I'm more interested in the questions of how does it change everyone else. So we who go in there, but that even not on that selfish level, but how does what we're, what the prisoners are doing when we work with them, how does that affect how people think about them and as a result about how um, we function as a society, that second of the question. So it's also, you know, not all our work in theatre is Shakespeare. Um, we've actually got our kind of second line of... Um, of practice is we, we do other stuff but we work a lot with um new local works and often they're historically based so we did a play about Bogo Road Jail in the 70s and 80s which I put together from oral histories given by people that either worked there or lived there so uh, the question is the same again it's like asking us to kind of look at how we what how we perceive of and treat and think about the most marginalised people, how that reflects what's going on on the bigger scale. So it's very easy to think about how do we fix these broken people uh, rather than what does this say about us all. I, I want to touch, Rob, as we do move to the latter half or latter part of this this conversation about um, someone who, who didn't grow up in the church and yourself. Uh, is that correct, yes? Well, I, I grew up lapsed. Yeah. So my parents were Catholic. <laughs> I was christened. Uh, um, I was communioned and we went to church about twice a year yep. uh good friday and i was gonna say christmas we would always go to midnight mass because you don't want to get in the way of the preparing of the feast that has to happen on christmas morning um and, and you know a bit more often than that when i um when i was around getting uh getting my first communion and confession so you've got to take all the classes and all that um when I was in late primary school, I went with some friends of mine. I went every week for probably about six months to their church, which I think it was a Baptist church. I couldn't tell. I know it was Protestant because, yeah, the wine was treated differently. Um, and uh, that was pretty much it, though. My parents were very, very disappointed when I chose not to take... Um, confirmation which in the catholic church has done you know in your teenage years um and uh yeah they were very disappointed and i pointed out to them what i perceived as hypocrisy because to a 15 year old everything your parents do is hypocrisy right um yeah i'll be facing that soon enough um 
which was to say, well, you go to church twice, you know, you don't even really believe this stuff and so on. And they'd be like, you know, what the will of the neighbours think? We don't have any neighbours. Um, yeah, so no, I did not grow up in the church to any real practising extent. <laughs> but you did, you've mentioned in your teenage years, read the Bible cover to cover. Um, yeah. Which is an intriguing That's thing to take sad, on, isn't it? <laughs> what, what did what did you make of it? From it, from what a, did they make of it? Well, I know that's a heavy question, but from mm. someone who, because for me, and I imagine for many of our listeners, the Bible growing up is laden with when you're reading it from a religious context. Yeah. There's so much baggage that this text has on it. Yeah. Whereas I imagine you were able to read it. No, all, same baggage. Same baggage. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like just because I wasn't practicing anything with a particular name um at that age i still identified i think as as christian even as catholic um uh but it's so present culturally that we all have the baggage i mean if we're brought up in the culture it doesn't matter i think you know so it absolutely had all of that i mean i wouldn't have read it if it didn't you know um but now you know it sits on our bookshelf you know next to the uh the Quran and the, the, the Greek classics and the works of Shakespeare as things that it's worthwhile knowing about because they're culturally important. At the very least, culturally important. They have shaped so much, one way or another, um, of, of the culture we live in. Why not know about it? But I think at the time it was more like because it was this great sacred text and I thought I was pretty smart and I should read it. <laughs> what, what did you think when you did read it was it a good read for you oh you know all the bits that were really cool and there's lots of them i'd already heard about anyway um the, i'd had all the spoilers like i knew what was going to happen no i didn't really revelation was shall i say a revelation it's like <laughs> this is some seriously tripped out stuff um <laughs> john what have you been eating um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting though when you read the Bible. Speaking of these theatrical uh, the ideas, you very much can see Jesus as a showman. Totally, um, I think I said that last week, and I do don't mean that in any disparaging way at all. I just meant that um, there's a deep understanding of that that kind of integration that you don't just you don't just tell people this is so. You know that that you have to engage. Um, you have to engage the whole the whole being. So there's a there's a physicality to, or I'm not going to even pretend I know which gospels which anymore. But there's there's a physicality to the to the Jesus that is presented, and I don't just mean the corporeality, but you know the 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 going cutting sick in the uh, in the temple with the moneylenders, for one example. The the some of the miracles are really they're they're about that physical transformation or manifestation that it's not just here's your here are your life lessons, open your mouth, here's your spirituality, like open your mouth, here's your Shakespeare. Um, and you, I think, mentioned the um, the palm. The Palm Sunday, yeah, the, Palm, yes, the Palm Sunday mm, theatre, yeah, which yeah, Peter, you might you can speak theater, a bit more yeah, on, perhaps. Yeah. Mm. And what happens in that? That for those who maybe aren't super oh, familiar sure. with the well, theatrical element, yeah. Well, of that. Jesus, Jesus picks up on themes that people would have been familiar with of of kings entering triumphantly into cities and and makes a parody of it by sitting on a donkey and having poor people scream out Hosanna. You know, so instead of instead of the rich crowds welcoming one of their own, you've got this smelly peasant sitting on a donkey being welcomed by 
poor people who are throwing their clothes on the on the road and and singing Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes the king. And it's a it's an absolute parody of everything that is overshadowing them as they go past the huge temple mm. and all its power and its glory. And Jesus has already said, Well, that's all gonna fall over. And so here he is sort of acting it's it's a bit like in the, the ancient times or the Middle Ages of of, of the youngest choir boy being dressed up as the bishop for the day right, or, yeah. or the king for the day and, and, and basically saying the whole thing's going to be turned upside down. And, it, it's, and, it, and it's street theatre, it's public theatre, it's, um, it's not just someone standing on a soapbox saying this is all going to happen. He's actually acting it out and the feeding of the 5,000 and all those other things. They're great pieces of theatre. Absolutely. Uh, transformative theatre. And they... Um, yeah, it's really that tradition you said in the Middle Ages too, and the tradition of the sot, you know, which is that that underworld that that um, or the clown characters Ooh. in Shakespeare, the putting in the, wis- the wisdom and and yep. yeah, and it, it it harkens back to 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 the sorts of um, functions of theatre before there were city states, and even in the city states that you know in Athens, theatre arose out of a religious practice. There was the the, the Temple of Dionysus and the Festival of Dionysus, and going back to other um, societies where you—you—that's how you pass on knowledge—is through theatre. Because, well, you don't have writing, so you're not going to write it down in a book. But even if you were, you consider you consider teen teenage person from any culture down and explain to them all the things they need to know, and they'll have forgotten them before you finish speaking. Yeah. But when it has that embodied, when it's actually demonstrated, lived out in real time, because it engages us intellectually, viscerally, emotionally, in all of those ways. Mm-hmm. It stays with us. And I think it carries, it's a vehicle that for, for subversion it's so oh, totally naturally, subversive. you know, yeah. and, and which is, you know, what Jesus is doing in embodying this, you know, there's this subversive um, track of, of Jesus coming through and, you know, turning everything upside down, as Peter said. But I, I love, Rob, your, um, the way you, you track history. We go from, you know, that the theatre was really an act of worship to the gods. It wasn't a performance people weren't going for best actor awards it was an act of worship <laughs> for the gods and but watching that transition to when the church actually got hold of theater and was really in the, in the dark ages that that theater was totally sort of overtaken co-opted by the church mm. and i love the story you tell of of the performance once the guilds got hold of it because i think that's a great example of how just this vehicle we can't it can't be contained this that that theater as in the theater of the church too and that that subversive message of jesus can never be contained and controlled is that lovely story could you tell the story of the guilds yeah sure so um uh, after the the collapse of the the classical world, the the Roman Empire, and so forth, the the theatrical practice and um, artistic practice generally became part of what the church did, and it was very powerful for the church, which suddenly found itself a major power, um, or the potential of being a major power, to um, to tell those Christian stories, those often very theatrical, both Old and New Testament stories, um, to uh, audiences that perhaps didn't speak Latin. So there's no point telling them the stories. Uh, And over time, so this develops the morality plays and the miracle plays, and then we get what people know as the mystery plays. 
And the word mystery there, of course, has nothing to do with how we understand the contemporary notion of a mystery, something we don't fully understand. Mystery just meant trade. So they were trade plays because they were outsourced, if you were, to the various guilds. So you might get your carpenters to come and build the set and you might get the tailors to build the costumes. And I always say, you know, if you're doing a Killing the Philistine story, then your, your butcher's guild will provide the pig's guts, which will spray out of the actors and all that wonderful stuff, right? Um, but the problem is once you start outsourcing, and especially as the trades, um, the, the middle class emerges, which is where the trades are, and um, then you get, you know, as soon as people realise things could be commodified, you get, if you look at medieval Europe in particular, as the trade states, trade city states arise, they go into conflict and often violent armed conflict with the church, so the papal states versus Venice. Or, you know. Anyway, so the um, the trade guilds would often start to get a bit seditious with their um, with their plays, and the one that, that I think you're referring to is the story that um, there was a production of The Passion, um, you know, financed by the church, put on by the church, but uh, instead of dressing the Pharisees up in the traditional you know, Jesus Christ superstar type outfits with the, I don't even know what you call those things, um, they dressed them up as, as cardinals and bishops of the contemporary church. So it's like, who killed Christ? You killed <coughs> yeah, Christ. Wow. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. yeah, so that Beautiful. sort of stuff. So yeah, before great, too long, the church expels the theatre <laughs> entirely and then it goes out into the streets and it becomes the Commedia dell'arte and it yeah. becomes the mm. thing that eventually led to Shakespeare and so Didn't kill theatre entirely though Because anyone who goes to any church now Sees many elements of, of theatre oh, yeah, In the contemporary church It, it can feel like a, a rock concert it, You know, the, the cathedral You know, Peter, the procession Some mm. of the things that are done What, what do you think the, the theatrical elements are there for In, in that sense in a church service? Um, well, I think they provide a number of um, number of things one, one, is, one is that through repeated acts of uh, theatrical practice we actually encounter we actually have the possibility of being transformed I think repetition is one of the most powerful tools we have uh, even though in our culture that's seen as boring or meaningless but it's, it's repetition and doing the ritual acts and and the and and the theater dressing it up making it into a liturgical dance I always think our worship is a liturgical dance uh, invites people into a different space and so it becomes a transformative space um, and some of it's just sheer fun um, mm. but also but you know the whole idea of processions is actually to remind people they're part of it and that they're on a journey and they're pilgrim people and that together we are actually going to make a difference and, and it actually helps people to be embodied so, you know, on Sunday night, we're going to have a procession and it's a way of getting people from being in spectator mode, which is one of the things that people can lapse into is, is to be part of it. It's like, you know, the, those wonderful acts of theatre when suddenly one of the, uh, the main characters suddenly addresses the audience in a way that invites the audience on stage, even if they don't have to leave their seats, it's just suddenly, and Shakespeare does that all the time with his clown characters and people who walk up and start giving you the sort of the goss behind the scenes and, and inviting you into a confidence that makes you actually really part of the show. And mm. so we use theatre for all sorts of different things, but it's really about getting people embodied and part of the, part of the action. And... There's a theatre of taking communion itself, you know, is a transformative act of 
it's you know, one level it's a pretty simple thing a bit of bit of ice cream cone and a sip of uh <laughs> sip of wine what's that about but the fact that we're all moving together and and sharing it and and we do have to rub shoulders and it's transformative stuff a bit of ice cream cone i like that um i think you've hit on something or several things there i mean about the ritual that the ritual and there's there are rituals of theater too particularly for the performance you know things like warming up and, and we have rituals and all our different practice they are part of that safety net that allows us to go beyond you know it says this is you know yeah but the other part of it is and i mean, there's reasons that, i suppose if you have to you can but there's reasons that people still go to churches rather than you know get church by skype or whatever yeah. and it's it, i would venture that it's the exact same thing as when i often just okay what is theater one of the defining characteristics is that it's a shared experience towards a common goal mm-hmm. and i mean surely that applies to absolutely as well right yeah, and all those yeah. all those things are important that it's shared mm-hmm. and shared in real real time and yeah. space that it's an experience not just a, yeah. a hearing or a seeing that it's yeah, yeah. and that it's the common goal yeah. and you can articulate just, yeah. and argue about what the common goal is but sure. yeah that's what distinguishes it say yeah. from mm. you know um quiet study in the library yeah. or something and else. why live theater is so much better than watching it on tv yeah, yeah. although it's interesting mm. that people will happily fork out you know 20 or more bucks to see a movie and if it's a terrible movie they go oh well that was a terrible movie but if they fork out 20 or 30 bucks to see a show and they don't like it they go i don't like theater yeah and why is it that people and part of it is you know what's shoved down our throats but i think part of it also because theater is live it asks you invites you and asks you to open up in a way that you don't have to in the movies and so that if you're disappointed you kind of feel personally hurt um whereas if you go to see a film and you're disappointed the people weren't there in the room with you so you can just go well that was doo-doo yeah i think that's i think that's right yeah well uh rob you've you, you've successfully got me interested in seeing some Shakespeare. Tell Ooh. me about the Queensland Shakespeare Ensemble. Well, How can people uh, this see this is you? why I'm really here, is to <laughs> advertise. I'll put on my FM radio voice. Um, so we are currently uh, in training. Our company trains together constantly, no matter how long people have been working with us. People have been working with us for 15 years or more. We always train together to form the ensemble. And the week after Easter, we always put on a sharing of our training. Uh, we call it Dare to Share because we like a rhyme. And this year we're calling it Dare to Share World in Flames. Um, just because that's catchy, really. It's got nothing to do. No, it does have something to do with it. Where we will be presenting about seven scenes from three or four different Shakespeare plays, a variety of speeches, sonnets, and some contemporary sonnets. So there's a bit of Jared Manley Hopkins, the <laughs> crazy druid priest. Um <coughs> A um, bit of Wilfred Owen, who's one of my favourite poets. And I think this is from an unfinished business that I have with the last production we did, which was The Blood Votes, which was about conscription and the conscription debates in Australia during World War One. a lot of Queensland stories there, stuff that history that we're not often taught about. Um, but at any rate, it's unfinished business for me because I directed the show, but I had to leave town. I went into the Territory to do my other job Um two days before it opened, so I never got to see it. Oh, so right. I'm still unfinished with World War One, and we will be performing on Anzac Day because of the timing of Easter, so we've got a few shows there. Um, in the spring, we will be doing Henry the Fourth, Part One, hmm. um, 
And essentially, you know, we, we have a website. You just look up Queensland Shakespeare Ensemble and um, it'll tell you about our productions, our training programs that we offer to the general public, uh, which include voice and Shakespeare, but also theatre of the oppressed, so a political theatre approach, um, and also about the, the various work in the community we do. And people can actually come and see the shows that we do in prisons. So the information's all up there. Um, it's not quite as easy as buy a ticket on the day and rock up. You do have to kind of jot down your details a few weeks in advance and get police clearance and so forth. But yeah, we have a whole variety of activities and we're constantly looking to engage with more different community organisations because that's really our audience. We mm. make it hard for ourselves. Yeah. Well, I'll, uh, I'll definitely see you at a show soon. Thank you so cool. much for joining the podcast My today. absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Mm. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.